most of humanity believes in an afterlife. And in most cases, this is a belief that involves what? A, a good place and a bad place. There is damnation or delight. There is heaven or hell. And if you're good, you go to the good place. And if you're bad, you go to the bad place. But if we're honest, good or bad, everybody wants the good. Everybody here wants heaven. Believer or not, who is here this morning, you want, we want eternal paradise. We want a good goal beyond death. So despite there being jokes about partying and beer and hell, sounds like a great long-lasting party, but despite those stupid jokes or Stephen Hawking saying that heaven is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark, he wants, all of us want, anybody here, if we are forced to answer from our heart, we want eternal paradise. We want it. Now, Rodney Stark, a brilliant sociologist, did a Baylor study back in 2007 that not only exposed that most people, most Americans believe in an afterlife, but that most Americans expect heaven. They expect heaven. So more than just wanting it here today, they, we expect it. We all expect heaven. I doubt few of us are like, no, I'm definitely going to hell. I doubt it. (laughs) So why do we expect it? The Old Testament says this, Ecclesiastes God has put eternity into man's heart. Friends, this is our innate haunting awareness of the forever. Only humanity hungers for experiences the temporal cannot satisfy. So there's a deep and abiding taste for something outside the boundaries of our own senses. The problem is, though, eternity has been redefined by our subjective standard of paradise. Whatever you love, whatever we love, heaven offers it, right? It's become a personal pleasure factory. So whatever we love. So so for me, it's Taco Bell's like on every freaking corner. Some of us, it's a Beyonce concert every night. Not Imagine Dragons. They're in hell, okay? (laughs) They're in hell. But for Angelinos, there's ample parking space. There's carbless bread. There's no traffic. Think about what is it for you? What is your heaven? What's on every street corner in your heaven? My dad always used to say, Casey, come around. Yes, Father. He said, heaven is a giant theater where we rewatch and rewatch all of life's greatest moments. That's so dumb. That's so (laughs) dumb. I remember being like eight years old and he's telling me this, like, that sounds horrible. But... If this redefining, if our redefining of eternity, if that's true, if we actually do that, we all get very bothered, Christian or not, as to why there is an angry God or a judgmental Saint Peter guarding its gates. Who are you? Who is this God to block me from my paradise? I expect it. Who are you? Simply, why doesn't God allow more in to paradise? And here's the controversial truth that despite eternity being planted like seeds in our hearts, heaven is not yours nor mine default destination. It is not. Now, heaven heaven or hell, I mean, if we think about it, they are not what our imaginations or Hollywood or the Iliad or Dante tell us it is. 
So we're here for the next five weeks. We're here right now to find out what in the world is it? Friends, these are the very ideas and questions that we seek to answer over the next five weeks. This is the series we are in, The Eternal. As we seek to know greater the nature, the life, the physicality, and the purpose of both heaven and hell. Even, if you're curious, does a loving God really send people to hell? That's next week. Or what about universalism? The idea that we're all just going to end up in heaven. That's coming up. What about this earth? What about gnashing of teeth? What about sex in heaven? What about torture in hell? Yes, I already told you, imagine dragons are there. Yes. But what about angels? What about harps? What about golden streets? But beyond that, how in the world do we get there? How do we end up in hell or how do we end up in heaven? So bear with me. Today will be a bit of an introduction. Today is going to be more about how we seek to know what is the way. What is the way? And John 14, what we had just read over, what Sarah just read, tells us explicitly how we do that, how we get there. John 14 is part of what's called a farewell discourse in Christ's final days. In fact, this account, is, this very night fills up. This very night fills up both John 13, 14, 15, 16, all the way to 17, which is the final prayer of Jesus, the priestly high prayer of Jesus in John 17. And for this author, this single night, it's as if all of salvation and all of our eternal understanding are in slow motion for the author. And if you remember from a couple weeks ago where we discussed the feet washing, this is that very night. This is that very moment. This is that very same room. And in this lengthy evening, the disturbing reality is setting in for Christ's closest followers, that being that Jesus is leaving. They're freaking out. Jesus is leaving, and it's crushing them. In fact, they've pretty much said, we have forsaken everything to follow you, and now you're going to abandon us? We can see the state of their hearts in verse 1. Look down in John 14, if you will. This is the state of their hearts. Let not your hearts be troubled. He has to say that because their hearts are troubled. What the disciples are struggling to settle is the exact same thing Los Angeles is struggling to settle. We, Angelinos, want the divine. We want spiritual enlightenment. We want the promise of paradise. Perhaps that is you this morning with a very same troubled heart. But now with Jesus leaving, it seems like it's paradise lost. And this is why when Jesus speaks to them, he speaks to them with very, very, very famous, eternal, paradisical language. Look at verse two. In my father's house are many rooms. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. And as Jesus says this to them, they begin to have their eternity change. As this is happening, their entire idea of eternity is changing before them, which is the same exact hope that we have for us, that we have for us as a church over the next five weeks. But then, and this is super dope, Thomas, the infamous doubting Tom Tom, again, riddled with fear and anxiety, burst out, look at verse five. Lord, Lord, we, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? There it is. How can we know 
the way. Where is it, he's saying? How is it? Jesus, how do we get to this paradise, this heaven? If we just knew the where you were going, if we just knew the way, we could figure out in and of ourselves to get there too. So Jesus, if you're starting some sort of a new government or new regime, we'll sharpen our swords. Jesus, if you're starting some sort of new religion, we'll sharpen our piety. But then Jesus says to them in the middle of their doubts, he offers not rebuke, but compassion and very carefully speaks quite possibly the most controversial sentence in all of the Bible. Get ready for it. Here it is. Verse six. And Jesus said to him, compassionately, and Jesus said to him, I am the way. Lord, how do we get there? I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. When there's moments like this for us, church, on Sunday mornings like this, I try to encourage us to slow down and sit with moments like these, to not rush past it. If these words bother you or disrupt you, can you recognize right now why they do that? These words, collective church, contain all of heaven and hell in them. This is the yellow brick road to yours and my eternals. Nothing about what Jesus just said is politically correct. It's so funny, Christian or not, many of us, we get so bothered by spiritual fuzzy vagueness or the the mystery in scriptures. Most of my counseling appointments with people in the church are, I don't understand this. What does this mean by this? How do I do this? How do we do this? But aren't we more shook by the unequivocal, undebatable, unapologetic directness of Jesus Christ? We're more bothered by this. These are the words upon which many reject Jesus. Perhaps that is you this morning. These are the exact reasons that I gave up on Jesus. These words. Showing us that it's outside of man's rationale. Because God has reached down to us, reminding and revealing to you and to me that you are not the way, you are not the truth, and you are not the life. There is no hidden meaning here. Jesus is making the most audacious claim any human can make. Am I right? I mean, right now, if I asked you to make the most insane, audacious claim you can make that would make everybody in this room gasp, what would it be? Think about it. I'm the president. So? (laughs) Pete Davidson is talentless. I don't know. What bothers people? I'm the world's most handsome man. It's more of a truth claim, but I don't want to get into that. (laughs) But I think, I think literally the peak is Christ's words. This is the most audacious claim any person can make ever. I can't think of one higher. And and notice, he isn't saying, I am a way. He is saying, I am the only way, truth, and life. These words get you crucified. Okay? An old Christian teacher named Thomas Acampus says of these words, Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there is no living. So what I'd like to do is to use these three 
identity claims of Christ as our three points this morning, because right, this right understanding of Jesus is a right understanding of the way and truth of life of our eternities that we all want. But be warned, be warned. These words, the way, our first point, come with mega, mega, mega objection, don't they? Because what Jesus just gave us here is seemingly the exclusion of your eternity, of my eternity. But not only yours and my paradise, but millions and millions and millions and millions of others. Is Jesus really the only way to my pleasure factory? Now, I have to be so gentle with this because I don't want to come across as condemnatory of other faith systems. So before I say what I'm about to say, please know if you have any further questions, I will buy you a burrito and I will talk with you. I promise. So be warned because these claims do not seem to fit well into our cultural or culture of acceptance, right? We know the common objections that many Angelinos have and live by are, are the objections of aren't all religions, doctrines, and creeds equally true? What about all roads lead to heaven? Or what about every faith being equally valid? So allow me to ask you right now, both Christian or not, do you really actually believe that? Because even most, if not all, pantheistic and all monotheistic worldviews don't. Yet it is still more popular to charge Jesus as the only one who is exclusive. So let me to ask you again, allow me to turn up the heat. Do you really believe that all faith systems, no matter what they are, are valid? The flying spaghetti monster. The Heaven's Gate cult. Jim Jones and his Kool-Aid. ISIS. Here's the thing. I don't have time to try and explain the validity or the invalidity of every religion or cult. Jesus didn't list out what aren't the ways. He listed out that he was the only way. So let's look for ample proof of what makes Christ worthy of such a claim. And I don't think we have to go any further if you're wanting to know the truth or the ample proof than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This being the preparation he spoke of when he responded to his disciples in verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you. That preparation is the cross. Because here's the thing. If all roads actually lead to God, like most of Los Angeles believes, then the cross is the breaking point. The cross. Here's what I mean. Many of you, I'm going to use the illustration to try to explain this. Many of you know the very classic illustration of a father who is a bridge engineer. And this is a dad, uh, excuse me, a father, and this is a, a, a father, this is a dad who is responsible for raising and lowering a drawbridge that allows trains to pass. Have you heard of this illustration before? Yeah, so some nodding heads, some other people don't. If you haven't, I'll give it the full understanding, but you'll bear with me. Basically, one day, the son happened to be visiting father, bring your son to work day or whatever, and be on the bridge when his father notices that his son is playing in the gears. And then the father upon noticing that, also notices the train rapidly approaching. And realization dawns upon the father that if he lowers the bridge, the gears will crush his son. But if he doesn't, all the people on the train will die. 
So left with a soul-shredding decision to kill his son, he cries and he screams and he punches the air. With only moments to deliberate, he pulls the lever and he hears the gears turn over and he lets out a guttural scream. Unaware, hundreds on trains were saved, but at the biggest cost ever of the father, which is the death of his own son. That is supposed to be a very famous illustration of the cross that preachers have used for generations, generations. But, 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 when it comes to all roads lead to God, when it comes to all religions are true, and if this is true, then God is cruel. God is cruel. And not just cruel, God is an incompetent, cosmic child killer. Because if all religious pluralism is true, then God the Father, who saw many paths, to save his son, other than crushing him, for some reason still pulled the lever. Is this making sense? Even if all roads lead to God, would be, this be the type of God you want to spend eternity with? Because to pull the lever, even those, lever, even those many other ways, is, makes him a monster. But if the lever was pulled because the cross is the only way, then that story, then the gospel goes from being, or the Christianity goes from being a horror movie to the greatest love story humanity will ever know. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way home. Jesus is the path, the bridge to eternity. Heaven and hell as destinations are solely based upon the truth of what you decide to do with Jesus. Receive or reject is the same as determining heaven or hell. Way more on that next week when we answer and talk about this God said people to hell. So yes, we believe there is one God to heaven, yet there are, however, many ways to Jesus. And Jesus is not saying, you know, I'm going to show you a path, a way to find God, but actually God comes to show you the way. Author Leslie Newbegin, hopefully he shows us its tension even more than I can do, where he says, it is inclusivist in the sense that it refuses to limit the saving grace of God to the members of the Christian church, but it rejects the inclusion, inclusive vision, uh, sorry, you know, I'm tired, which regards the non-Christian religious as vehicles of salvation. Here's what I want to get us to. It is the pluralist in the sense of acknowledging the gracious work of God in the lives of all human beings, but it rejects a pluralism, which denies the uniqueness and decisiveness of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Simply, each person here today, you or me, must decide what is truth. Because if all faiths are valid, and you believe that, again, the problem with this claim is nobody else believes it. No other faith system believes it. But if you are the only one who says, I don't care what they believe, I still believe that, then you are making yourself an exclusive claim to truth, and how is that different than Jesus's? Because if anyone here is claiming that their doctrine about God is right and everyone else's doctrine about God is wrong, that's more of a claim about you than it is about faith. Or how about this? Even if you're here this morning or you've heard people say, and who are completely on the other side saying all religions are equally, equally false and should be disregarded, unfortunately, you're going to face the same problem because it is not that is that not in and of itself a truth claim and therefore also false? <laughs> I mean, 
Do you see the hornet's nest we're in? So we are constantly asking ourselves, what is truth? Well, we're in luck. Verse six. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth. In your opinion, collective church, what makes truth, and I have to say this gently, what makes truth so arrogant? Because that's what it is, isn't it? Expressed or shared truth today is now received as an arrogant dagger. Maybe this is why Jack Nicholson yelled in Tom Cruise's face. Nobody? We're in LA. What do you yell? You got it. You can't handle the truth. Whatever. Gosh, I work hours on these illustrations. Is it because truth, as far as the arrogant answer, is it because truth is always exclusive? Truth is a very exclusive entity because it leaves out everything else. But this particular meaning of truth in your Bibles, Christ uses is even more elevated or, or, or lifted up because that word truth, and circle it, whatever you want to do, in its original meaning means the reality behind all of life. That's how you define that word truth. So are we following this? If truth is a person, if God discloses the truth about himself in Jesus Christ, then Jesus is the reality behind all of life. And if he is truth embodied, it means everything he said was truth. It means everything he validated was truth. It means everything that all of his mandates were, have the weight of truth with them. And once these two categories become one, that we know the way is honest and is truthful, then and only then does the, the, the ending of verse 6 resonate. Look at it now. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We can't get to the third one if we can't do the other two. Now, I found it very interesting this week as Thomas was wanting to know about future eternity, like many of us here today. We're all amped up on this series. We want to know about future eternity. And Jesus chimes in and says something about life today. Jesus is not saying anything about afterlife, death, immortality, but life. As if life and eternity to Jesus are somehow interlocked. So collective church, follow me ever so closely because we're going to go into the deep end, the bottom part where the drain is and kids like to hang on. We're going to go to that part for a few moments to make a bigger part. So I encourage you to take a big, deep breath. Okay, we're going to go deep for a second to make a bigger point. According to McTaggart in his book, The Relationship Between Eternity and Time, eternity only has three Interpretations. I believe we have them. Ross, there it is. <laughs> this book was like written in 1909. Riveting. Okay? This is what they say. What he says, Taggart. It's an unending stretch of everlastingness, or it is that which is eternally timeless, and that which includes time, but somehow also transcends it. He made the claim that these are the only interpretations of, time, of, of eternity that you'll ever need. Friends, this sounds nauseating. For kicks and giggles, here are some of the most modern attempts at illustrating eternity. I'm going to give you two of them. You guys curious? Oh my gosh. Just joking. For kicks and giggles, 
One compares, this is it compared to eternity. One compares it to single, these are real, single voyages to the moon where you grab a small moonstone and then you head back to earth. After one trip at a time, one stone at a time, you have collected the entire moon. That is a single day in eternity. <laughs> Another illustration. I heard this one when I was very young. When a butterfly has beat its wings against a steel ball the size of earth and grounded it to a fine powder, that is a minute in eternity. <laughs> right? We struggle so hard to think beyond temporal categories that we have to make up stupid things about butterflies and steel balls, right? Most of our definitions of eternity is on the basis of future-oriented time. Time, time, time. But this brings us a bit of trouble because God does not exist in time. Or rather, it's more theologically accurate to say that God has authority over time. We do not. So both God and eternity have no beginning and no end, informing us that God is not waiting for eternity to start. He lives in it now. Now, before we go one step further, settle that into your hearts. Because too many think that our real life, our real life in Jesus, starts or will begin to start after death. And that's when we experience the presence of God. And some sort of holographic, puffy cloud, heavenly realm reduces, if we believe that, that reduces this life to no more than heaven's waiting room. Then the Bible just becomes, and follow me here, basic instructions before leaving earth. Ew! You guys get it? B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth? That's what it gets reduced to. That is so dumb. John, is that dumb? You're not paying attention. You like it. You have it tattooed on you somewhere. Prayer becomes a little bit more or no more than just a way of forwarding messages to God, this God that we hope to meet one day in the future. Friends, family, collective church, eternity is not something that will come into existence. It has always existed. But now through the truth and through the way and through the life, it's now available. Eternity is now available. You see, where man's eternity is always about the quantity of time and space and future, God's eternity, what is offered and available to us, is colored by the quality of relationship today. It is the existence in which God himself and Jesus Christ possess together. So we must think less of the eternals, again, as in time, space, and future, and what we can have in this moment, in this moment. I invite us to think of eternity as one philosopher said, Eternity is the whole, simultaneous, perfect possession of limitless life. Oh, there it is. I am the way, the truth, and limitless life. But Casey, that sounds super spiritual and whatever. What does any of that mean? It means this. Get out your pencil. Somebody's writing it down already. It means this. Life beyond life. Now, this is very special. Bear with me. We're still in the deep end. We're still holding on to the drain. This is very special. There are other words and divisions for life in the original language. One of the division means life as far as the details of life, food, air, nourishment. There's another division of the word life, which we see in the Bible, that means like soul, which means the um, difference between you and animals and plants. But then there's this division of life, this one, which means life beyond life. Friends, this is eternity. 
John, the author of this gospel, is obsessed with this division of life. John 10.10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Life beyond life. This is what this is all about. Jesus is the way to eternal life. The truth which is the reality behind life and the life which is beyond life. So for those here who are curious about Christianity and wondering, will Jesus improve my life? I give a very loud answer of no. He will not. I want to know if Jesus is going to make my life better. No. He's not. In fact, I'll go as far as to say with the details division of life, the nourishment, or the soul division of life, it might even be more push or strained because we start to give more of our time and our money and our energy. But life beyond life, the exact division that was lost in the Garden of Eden when humanity chose to be their own gods, Jesus can't improve what we don't have. He gives this anew. Charlie, you with me? Okay. So can Jesus improve this life beyond life? No, he gives it fresh. It's new. We can't improve that. This is what Jesus meant when he said in John 3, this is which is born, excuse me, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Life beyond life exists there. This is why joy can exist in trials. This is why worship can exist in worry, and praise can exist in pain, because life beyond life. C.S. Lewis, ugh, I love him, a likens this as if a statue becomes a man. He says, this world is a great sculpture shop. We are the statues. And there's a rumor going around the shop that some of us someday are going to come to life. That some of you today, for some of you today, that, that could be happening. I enjoy the title of Pastor John Ortberg's book, which says, Eternity is Now in Session. Here's how. The only time this eternal life phrase was actually defined was by Jesus himself in John 17, the very same evening. Read it with me. Look at this. Jesus defines it for us. And this is eternal life, that they know you. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We can have an interactive, participating, engaging, eternal relationship with God now. This is why John Lennon was so close when he said, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Oh, he's so close. Hear me so closely. Yes, eternal life understood by eternal living today. Eternal living. If this isn't received or actualized today, then the real heaven, not the cartoon heavens, not the Hollywood heaven, will be hell. Theologian Dallas Willard says this, I am thoroughly convinced that God will let everyone into heaven who, in his considered opinion, can stand it. 
So when Thomas inquires in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where we're going, Jesus doesn't respond with a destination, geography, or a zip code. He responds with verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one goes to a foreign country. No, no one goes to the Father. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. Eternal life is equated only with knowing, believing, and trusting God through Jesus. Wait, I thought getting into heaven was all about good works. Wait, I thought getting into heaven was about being a nice guy, being a nice lady, picking up the newspaper from people's lawns and handing it to the person who owns the newspaper. I don't know, how, whatever being nice to a neighbor is, I don't know. I thought, being, like, I thought going to heaven was charity work. I thought going to heaven was because I memorized the Bible. No. Why? Because that's you and that's me being the way and the truth. But to know God is to live in a rich, abundant, moment by moment, gratitude dripping, grace offering, delightful, enjoying, interactive life beyond life. Jesus is not offering, in John 14, afterlife insurance. John 14, Jesus is revealing and offering us God. Do you want God? If you do not, the heaven you want will be hell. Do you want God? Let's take it a step further. Do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy God now? Christians, 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 you are now leading a life that will last forever. How are you living it? So today, respond, sing, and pray, not with past or future inclinations, but present reality, present truth. Visitors, church, family, would you let us pray this over you this morning? That your life you are leading is marked by eternal living. There's going to be people on that wall, I mean, people on that wall wearing yellow, wearing yellow lanyards. Will you let them pray that over you? If you go into my life, I don't enjoy God. I don't like God. I think he barely likes me. Would you let us pray over you this morning that we'd be able to experience eternal living today in this moment? And then second, Christians, as you come up, you're going to see communion here on my right and my left. And when you receive this, remember as you come up that you weren't just saved. This is important. Many of us think that we are just saved by the gospel from sin and death and the grave and darkness. Yes, we were saved from something. We were also saved for someone. Salvation is way more about a relationship than it is a requirement. So allow communion to be a reflective time upon that saving as it's the very elements which purchased you and your eternal life. Let's do that now. Pray with me.